0: Everyone, welcome to another ESMO podcast. Uh, Tom and I are delighted to be joined by Louise Emmett today. Um, she is presenting at ESMO the EnzaP study, which is an ANZIP trial, which is looking at enzalutamide and lutetium versus enzalutamide alone in uh, CRPC. And it's really sort of novel work. And I know ANZIP has been leading the way in some of the lutetium studies from the early days. So Louise, welcome. If you want to just briefly introduce yourself and then maybe start with you know, just some background and sort of where the study came from, and then we'll, we'll sort of launch into it.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'm Louise Ambert. I'm a nuclear medicine physician, uh, and I run the Theranostics and Nuclear Medicine Department at St. Vincent's Hospital in Sydney, Australia. Um, so the NTP trial is really uh, born um, from the previous work that's happened in the space with Lutitian PSMA 617, uh, and also in, in, you know, the really nice trials that have come out in, Demet, um, uh, in the met um and the rad that have come out of um ends up as well so
2: chris sweeney ian davis friends of the show friends of the show <laughs>
1: exactly <laughs> yeah. exactly so it's great to go on journeys with friends right
2: yes it is yes it is especially um, australian friends
1: yeah and we had um we had done the therapy trial uh, so uh, therapy, uh, the smaller version of vision, which was lutetium PSMA versus cabazitaxel chemotherapy. Right. So that was a trial that had been run around Australia. Louis, can I interrupt you? I
2: apologise.
1: Well, I
2: apologise. Why is Australia doing so well at these um, these radioligand studies? Why is why because well, Australia seems to be leading the way? Is it because you're particularly good at, at nuclear medicine Are you're particularly well integrated? Is it a trials group? Did you set out a vision five years ago saying Australia is going to nail this? Well, how, how, how come you're so far ahead of the UK in this respect?
1: Well, we had, we had started with, a, a, so, so first of all, I think it's collaboration. Um, and I think it's having a group of people who are passionate about what they do, who work very well together at a multidisciplinary level, because you can't do this as a single discipline. Um, and... Um, a, and it, it's having collaborative trials groups like up that are able to pull us all together, um, and so uh, you know I think it's a composite. It was it's not luck, it's hard work, uh, but it's a composite of getting that multidisciplinary team, and I think it's also having a level playing field between team uh, between disciplines. So this is a nuclear medicine physician who's um, you know reporting on a randomised trial in an oncology space, um, which I think is which I think is cool to to yeah. achieve that. Agreed. Um, so, so the therapy trial uh, was run by Michael Hoffman was the PI, was run by ANZUP uh, and uh, NHMRC-CTC groups around Australia, and it, it joined us all together in a, in a very good way. We, we knew how to do this. Uh, we had the sites. Uh, we understood the limitations of lutetium peer therapy therapy uh, used on its own uh, in the later stage, and that naturally led to questions about uh, how can we improve it? What can, we, what can we do to actually take this great, well-tolerated treatment and push it forward, but also push it better? Um, and that's really looking at um, what we should be combining it with, uh, in my opinion. Uh, and so that's really how the Nsp started.
0: And so you moved it into the pre-chemo space right, moving it earlier, as you alluded to, and also the, the combination with ENZA. Was, was ENZA a deliberate choice there compared to other hormonal agents?
1: So um, at the time, there was some questions about whether ABBY, uh, in conjunction with radionuclide therapy, particularly with radium, uh, would increase um, fractures and uh, cause, cause poor adverse outcomes. We'd done ENZA-RAD and ENZA-MET in the up space. Um, and so it seemed logical to use Enzalutamide plus uh, Lutetian PSMA617. Um, and we had really good, uh, well, we had early scientific evidence for nice interactions within the cell of those two receptors, blocking the androgen receptor and the PSMA receptor. If you, you know, they have this strong relationship intracellularly. If you block the androgen receptor, then in a number of cell lines, you actually get upregulation of the you know, the PSMA receptor, probably because uh, the PSMA receptor is a pi 3 k akt mtor pathway uh, receptor. Um, So we moved it earlier. We combined it with enzalutamide for those reasons. And we kept it in the metastatic castrate resistance space because of other work showing that your receptor activity um, with androgen blockade in the hormone-sensitive space is very variable. Quite a few patients will actually lose PSMA expression in the hormone-sensitive space.
0: Louise, the, <laughs> so this there
1: was there the, the, the vision trial that
2: came... Apologies, please. So the vision trial that came before you um, mm-hmm. was a randomized phase three with a survival advantage. It was monotherapy uh, versus a... Not a
1: monotherapy. No, no, vision was... A va- um, so if you look at the vision trial, vision was standard of care versus standard of care plus lutetium PSMA. And if you look at the um, supplementary tables of the vision trial, 52% of those patients had standard of care plus an ASI, either abiraterone or enzalutamide. So it wasn't monotherapy, but it was later. So it was post docetaxel and Hmm. post ASI, at least first line. And 38% of them were post chemo. uh,
2: So in in some respects there are parallels, although this trial is earlier, there are parallels in that in some patients in the vision trial were having NHA as well. Is is that correct?
1: Absolutely. So it was second line in the vision trial. But if you look at the, you know, it's not powered, it's got a lot of interference with it. But if you look at the hazard ratio between patients on an ASI, not on an ASI in vision trial, it was something like 0.68 to 0.52 hazard ratio. So those patients on an ASI, in addition to lutetium PSMA in the vision trial, actually uh, did quite well.
0: So, kind of further supporting what you said before about the maybe some biologic rationale for combination and, and so Louise, just they, to
2: extend on that point do you think there's a problem with it with a chemotherapy or a different combination with this or do you or do you actually just kind of genuinely feel that that this should be with with Enza moving forward do you think this is you know we're going to talk about the results in a second but when you designed the trial did you feel strongly that this mixed because we, we we had um, we've talked to Mike Morris and various other people around the control arm of the vision trial. And it was quite controversial. And your control arm is a lot less controversial. Is that fair?
1: Yes, we wanted a strong comparator arm. Um, you know, I think this is an investigator initiated trial. We have opportunities to uh, do things in a, in a way that's solid. Um, and we wanted a strong um, comparator arm. And I, th- I think this is one.
0: And you, you talked a little bit about the <clears throat> entry criteria, but one of them was having risk factors for early ends of failure. I think it was at least two high-risk features for early ends of failure. Can you talk a little bit about where those yeah. come from and why you, why you did that?
1: Yeah. So, um, you know, I think that um, we knew that uh, might work well. We've got the Prevail trial data to show um, uh, that— Enzalutamide work, works well in this space, so early metastatic castrate resistance. Uh, but then there's some very nice data in the PREVAIL trial to show that about a third of men actually fail you know, treatment earlier, have primary resistance to ASI in the early metastatic castrate resistance space. Um, and you've got two trials, got PREVAIL and Prophecy trial, both of which looked at risk factors for men uh, who have early treatment failure on, on enzalutamide in that space. And I. You know, I think that if you're going to add a second drug and increase toxicity, you really want rationale to do that. Um, And this whole rationale was say, take men who we know are not going to do particularly well, and can we make them do as well as everyone else on that trial, even though they have those risk factors, by adding judicious amounts of a second treatment? Really, the idea of having a continuous ASI as a treatment and then using the Lutetian PSMA as an adjunct treatment to mop up resistant clones. Um, and then to keep them going for longer on that really well-tolerated um, uh, primary treatment, which is enzaludamide.
0: And you talk about, you use the word judicious right now, and that's, I want to talk about this adaptive dosing, which was not done in the VISION trial, correct, but that that you did in this trial. Can you describe that a little bit?
1: Yeah. So what the whole idea is um, trying to, uh, so in the VISION trial and in therapy, we gave uh, six doses of lutetian PSMA, standard six weekly intervals. Uh, there was an opportunity to actually pause that uh, if you had a good response on therapy, but in vision, it's just six doses. The question is, if we use uh, adaptive dosing or an interim PET, um, can we uh, look to see patients who've had an exceptional response and don't actually need further treatment uh, or see patients who actually haven't had An exceptional sponsor need more treatment. Um, This is the idea of adaptive dosing. So you do biomarkers, and in this case, the biomarkers would be a baseline PSMA PET and PSA, and a week 12 PSMA PET and PSA. Um, And you look at those two biomarkers together, uh, and then you can uh, adjust dosing based on how the biomarkers are looking. So in this case, everyone on the experimental arm Got enzalutamide plus two doses of lutetium and PSMA. And then at the day 92 pet, it was centrally reviewed. If there was any residual disease on the PSMA pet, they got another two doses. Um, and the,
0: and the any, any whatsoever. It wasn't about magnitude of response. It was and no matter what they started with, if they had anything left, they continued.
1: Yeah, so I think in the long term it will be about magnitude of response, but in this first adaptive dose trial using an interim PET, we just made it very simple. There was either disease above blood pool on the PSMA PET or there was not. So we had quite a high bar. Certainly a lot of the patients who went on and got four doses, some of them had one mil of disease left. Um, you know, So it was equivocal as to whether they should have got more doses. But you know, four doses itself, is not as many as was given on vision, which was six. <laughs> right. Um, and I think that if you take adaptive dosing to its natural endpoint, you'll have it so that you'd have an interim PET and people you would adjust further going up to six doses right. um, in these patients. And I think if we had been able to add a couple more doses um, and be a bit more complex in our adaptive dosing, we would have got longer outcomes in the experimental arm than we than we have now.
2: Louise, can I just ask you, PSMA PET as a biomarker, are you sure this is the right approach? How confident are you about this as a biomarker to select these patients? And how confident are you that dynamic changes to this biomarker correlate with survival?
1: Well, I can't be confident at the moment uh, because it hasn't been looked at in detail. There was a very nice paper by Stephen Rowe and Catherine Zikatinski, which looked at um, Uh, in a baseline and a two or three-month PSMA PET in patients with MCRPC on enzalutamide or abiraterone. And they were able to show that if you had any upregulation at all or any increase in volume on that PSMA PET, um, those patients died uh, about twice as quickly. Uh, But that was just 16 patients. One of the things I I really like about the NCP trial is it's actually not just one trial, it's a double trial. Um, So we have the therapy randomized uh, endolutamide versus endolutamide plus two or four doses of lutetium PSMA. Then we have the biomarker arm. So in these patients, we did a ridiculous amount of um, CT DNA, blood, um, CTC assessment, as well as um, PSMA PET. So we did PSMA PET and FDG at baseline. We did a PSMA PET to look for early upregulation on enzalutamide at day 15 before any lutetium PSMA. This was both arms. We did a day 92 PSMA PET and we did a PSMA PET and an FDG PET at um, first progression, either radiographic or PSA. Um, And we we matched that with uh, CTCs at the baseline day 92 and progression um, time point, as well as circulating tumour cells, as well as extra blood for anything that anyone could think of that they might want to do in the future. <laughs> <laughs> so we have we have um, uh, a huge translational component of the trial that will hopefully answer some of the questions that you've just asked. Early oh. upregulation, PSMA-PET as a biomarker, comparison to CT and bone scan. Um, for treatment response. Um, I think they're all really, really important questions. Louise, and then
2: my how last, do
1: radiation resistance.
2: My last question before we go into the results, what was the purpose of the day 15 scan?
1: So um, I did a really weird little study a few years ago where I did weekly PSMA PET in patients uh, with metastatic castration resistant prostate cancer starting on enzalutamide and also uh, in patients with metastatic hormone-sensitive prostate cancer starting on ADT. And it found these results where you got this quite significant upregulation by day nine of the um, PSMA receptor in response to androgen blockade. We have the Steven Rowan-Zuchochinski data showing that that kind of response actually leads to early overall survival um, limitations. So the day 15 PET is to really look in detail about PSMA kinetics. Um, about whether upregulation of PSMA in response to androgen blockade actually does lead to shorter overall survival, whether it, um, whether it leads to short progression-free survival in patients on enzalutamide. Is it a biomarker? Um, and if you have that on PSMA PET, on enzalutamide, does adding lutetium PSMA mitigate um, those uh, poor prognostic factors?
0: So, Louise, that's great. I mean, the translation works incredible. Obviously, we look forward to that. I'm going to read a little bit of the patient characteristics, then we're going to, I'm going to just turn it back over to you to, like, talk about the actual results, which we haven't gotten to. So, it looks like. I'm sorry it's taken so long, Louise. It's not normally like this. We're normally much so,
2: better than
0: this. Median age 70. It looked like 60% of patients had more than 20 PSMA avid metastases. So, this was a, a relatively high volume group, at least by that one criteria. Uh, about A ha- little more than half had early dose of taxable hormone-sensitive disease and about 10-ish percent with prior ABBY. Um, so I guess kind of what you'd maybe expect in this for this kind of trial in this circumstance. So tell us tell us about the primary endpoint.
1: Yeah, so it was a high-risk group is one thing. The primary endpoint was PSA progression-free survival. Um, and uh, obviously an in interim, uh, a primary endpoint, we do have radiographic progression-free survival, pain progression-free survival. and um, uh, and clinical progression coming after that, um, but but PSA, PFS was the first, um, was the primary endpoint.
0: And that, that your hazard ratio for PSA progression-free survival was an impressive 0.43, I guess maybe one question, why did you choose that as an endpoint as opposed to later endpoints like radiographic or otherwise?
1: Uh, this is, uh, once again, a strange question, uh, in, at least in in large part, this trial was designed by a nuclear medicine physician, and I don't have faith in bone scan. Um, I, I do think we need to stop doing CT and bone scan, and I, uh, as a result of that, these patients have bone-predominant disease. This will be a bone scan-led outcome, um, and I don't think it's um, accurate. I know there's strong correlation between radiographic progression-free survival and overall survival, but... Uh, but I don't think it's an accurate endpoint, And I thought PSA-PFS was a much uh, stronger interim cut point. It's much clearer. Uh, and in fact, we did have problems with radiographic progression-free survival in, in the trial. It's funny, uh, as as oncologists,
0: we don't have faith in PSA, so maybe. <laughs> do we think, this is sort of an aside before we go back to the results, do you think we'll get to a day where PSMA-PET is so ubiquitous and easily done that that'll be our, our PFS, right? It'll be... PSMA PET progression, not these what we call conventional, right?
1: Absolutely. Uh, So, I think that PSMA PET is an excellent biomarker in the metastatic uh, space for prostate cancer. Um, We need to know how to use it. We have no criteria for treatment response. Uh, We have no bridges to um, identify um, how it uh, correlates to CTN bone scan progression. Uh, We need to be embedding uh, these PSMA PETs into prospective trials in order to be able to evaluate that Um, and and is a start um, to that but we need to do it in much larger trials Um, so we need to do it in pharma trials uh, as well as in investigator initiated trials in order to to know how to use it.
2: Louise your PSA response rate was 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 higher too wasn't it so it wasn't just progression-free survival your response rate was pretty impressive as well is that fair?
1: Yeah, um, so uh, I think so. So the hazard ratio for PSA-PFS was 0.43, and um, uh, a lot of zeros behind that in terms of significance. Uh, The progression-free survival was 7.8 months versus uh, 13 months. Um, And then the depth of response uh, for 50% response rate was, I think, 68% versus 93% for the combination. So we did get uh, very deep responses in just about all of those patients who were on the combination. Um, and we, we did get a nice improvement in progression free survival in the uh, PSA PFS, um, which was the primary endpoint. So, you know, I think uh, what we set out to do was to come up with a rationale for improving outcomes with patients uh, when we use Lutetian PSMA. And I think the combination's definitely shown that it can do that.
2: Your radiological progression-free survival, 0.67, isn't quite as impressive as 0.43, and we've not seen any other data.
1: So what I would ask you to look at, first of all, is the uh, censored data. Uh, So if you look at the censored data and radiographic progression-free survival, um, it is um, about a little bit over half the patients um, in the enzalutamide arm um, have already come off trial. Uh, but had censored data and, you know, I think this might be a little bit of a harbinger of what's coming. We did PSA and FDG as a translational endpoint at first PSA progression. The inadvertent uh, action of that was our investigators saw the volume of disease, particularly on the enzalutamide arm, on PSMA uh, PET. And those patients can straight off trial straight off trial and went straight on to other treatment without further imaging for CTM bone scan to confirm progression. So we actually lost our highest volume patients uh, with RPFS early. So when you look at the enzalutamide plus lutetium PSMA arm, the censored numbers are the patients who are still on trial. When you look at the enzalutamide arm, it's almost twice those patients who are still on trial. So I, I think the RPFS data is a casualty of our translational program, actually.
0: Yeah, and Louise, let's talk just briefly about toxicity before we go to next step. So what'd you see in terms of toxicity of the combination?
1: So if you look at the toxicity, it was really similar between the two. There were, were overall more AEs, but the patients were on trial almost double the time um, up to the interim analysis um, on the combined arm than they were on the enzalutamide alone arm. We did get, um, 4% grade 3 toxicity in uh, with anemia. We had 1% grade 3 toxicity with uh, thrombocythemia um, in the combination arm, but very few increased um, toxicities. SAEs uh, were the same across the two. I think it was 33% for the combined arm and 35% for um, enzalutamide. Uh, there were uh, four deaths um, on the trial, none of which were felt to be related to um, either of the uh, uh, treatments, and were equally distributed.
0: Yeah, I mean, knowing the, this, the landscape of lutetium like you do, I mean, where do these data fit in? Where do you go next? What's the next ANSA plan in this regard?
1: Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Um, uh, a few things come out of NSP from this. Uh, first of all, I think the combination is extremely powerful. Um, how we, But as you know, most patients are receiving first-line ASI in the hormone-sensitive space now. Uh, we are doing PSM addition, which is uh, an ASI plus um, six doses of lutetium PSMA in the hormone-sensitive space. The question is, giving six doses right up front without adaptive dosing, is that going to be um, positive? It's possible that um, the majority of those patients have androgen-sensitive disease and, you know, the addition of lutetium piece may may not be quite enough. It'll be very interesting to see what happens with addition. In the metastatic castrate-resistant space, we need to know whether this response uh, also occurs with second-line ASI. Um, So should you, in the metastatic castrate-resistant response, uh, uh, space also have patients on an ASI. If they're being treated with lutetium PSMA, and should that happen all of the time, um, yeah. I think that's a key question that comes out of it. And the the other key question that comes from this is the adaptive dosing. Yeah, we've used smaller doses of lutetium PSMA. We've got less toxicity than you'd expect with you know um, six doses six weekly. Should we be doing this all the time uh, when you have a radiation target? Um, that does give some toxicity, can we use it judiciously when we have the target, stop when we don't have the target and then recommence once the target is returned. I think we can do things better um, than what we're doing at the moment with six doses, six weekly. Um, And, uh, you know, we move into the era of personalised medicine with a lot of other treatments. I think NZP is saying that that's what we should also be doing with letitious PSMA.
2: Louise, Indeed. does this have any uh, influence on current practice today and tomorrow, this randomised phase two?
1: So it's a randomised phase two, it's not a phase three. Yeah. Um, I, I I think it would be a stretch to say that a phase two can change practice. I think the results are really strong. They're really powerful to say that we should be changing what we do. Um, but I I. Don't think there's going to be a lot of people who are on first-line ASI. I think that there's people on first-line ASI um, in the metastatic carthreat-resistant space, um, then those patients who've got high risk uh, would benefit from lutetian PSMA. Uh, it, you know, I, I, the world has changed since we started um, uh, NTP, and it's now a hormone-sensitive space. Um, but I think this will very much guide how we should develop Lutetian PSMA in the future.
0: So, he's, my last question, and again, congrats on a great data set, great presentation. Sort of, I guess, a multiple choice. Ultimately, you think the role of lutetium will be A, in the hormone sensitive space, B, in the castrate resistant pre chemo space, or C, in the castrate resistant post chemo space?
1: <laughs> can I say A, B, and C?
0: <laughs> yes, you can.
1: Sure, yes, you can. You can do whatever you Because if we. If we can use adaptive dosing and we don't have, you know, significant toxicity with this, we know from previous data that's been published that if you use it once, your chance of actually getting a 50% response rate the second time is high. So if we end up with an adaptive dose to uh, lutetium PSMA in the hormone sensitive space, it's available again in the castrate resistant space.
0: So you might sprinkle it in whenever your PSMA scan flares up, is that
1: Either that or, you know, you sprinkle it in, they go to something else. You sprinkle it in at the beginning to get longer responses on the ASI and the hormone sensitive space. Um, and perhaps that will happen. We need to see what happens with addition. Mm-hmm. You can do the same in the early metastatic carcerate resistance space. And then once you've had chemotherapy, you have a second bite. I, I, I think that this is not a treatment you just need to use once. I think you can use it again if you have the target. And we can tell if we have the target. The thing we don't know is about radiation resistance. We need genetic markers. We need good markers to identify whether or not that patient has persistent um, radiation sensitive clones, because that's really key in determining whether or not we should give it again um, or at all.
2: Louise, could we invite you back on the show? And could we ask you to come back and talk about that resistance and how we'd approach that?
1: Sure. I mean, you know, that's a really interesting question. And and, um, uh, I'm hoping that once again, some of our translational work will answer it.
2: I'd love to. uh, I'd love to talk more about that.
0: Yeah. Congratulations. What a magic presentation. Super interesting. Thanks for joining us. Congrats.
1: We'll keep in touch and see you soon. Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye bye.